World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Ethiopia's newish prime minister was supposed to be a champion of peace. In fact, he got last year's Nobel Peace Prize. But in Oromia, the country's most populous state, our correspondent sees evidence of a violent and indiscriminate crackdown. And amid COVID-19, there are fewer glitzy holiday pictures on Instagram, but people still talk about where they are. Our data team dug into hundreds of thousands of posts, finding that they might be useful for tracking the progression of the disease. But first... Today, Britain joins much of the rest of Europe in imposing strict rules on socialization meant to curb the spread of coronavirus. That is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping, the basic necessities. This social distancing will directly and indirectly save lives, and it'll buy time for the development of COVID-19 drugs and, eventually, vaccines. Last week, the World Health Organization announced a global trial called Solidarity to jumpstart the search for treatments. This large international study is designed to generate the robust data we need to show which treatments are the most effective. World leaders have tried to sound a note of optimism about early-stage research. So we slash red tape to develop vaccines and therapies as fast as... It can possibly be done. But just how fast will that be? The world is not particularly well prepared to fight COVID-19 for the simple reason that this is a totally novel virus that we've never seen before. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. And so we don't have drugs, we don't have vaccines that are designed to fight this disease. There seems to be a lot of discussion both about treatments, drugs for for use now, um, and and also about vaccines for sort of an indefinite future. Which do you think is going to be brought to bear first? Well, I think we're seeing both of these modes of therapy being advanced as fast as possible at the same time, and lots of exciting things are happening. But for practical purposes, I would anticipate that we would start to see interesting results coming from the drugs first, more than the vaccines say. That's just for the simple reason that what we're doing at the moment is we've sort of scoured the medicine cabinet and we've said, what have we got in here that might work against COVID-19? And that approach has meant that, you know, we don't have to go through such long drug development timelines. And if you think about it, when you invent a new drug, 
you know, one of the first things you're going to need to do is find out whether it's safe to give to people and, you know, what kind of side effects does it cause? And, you know, if you have an existing drug, something that's been approved in a different condition, you may have, you know, many, many, many years of safety data, not to mention trials that were used to get the drug approved. And so how would these things even be deployed? What does getting a treatment for COVID-19 actually mean? A treatment for COVID-19 could mean a whole range of things. It could mean a drug given to people who are critically ill uh, in hospital. It could be um, a drug given to someone who's just moderately ill at home. Um, Ultimately, it might even mean um, uh, a drug given to healthcare workers um, prophylactically to prevent them catching COVID-19. And we don't really know all the answers. So that's the purpose of running trials. And that's really what's going on with some great speed uh, all around the world as we speak. And I would say that, you know, even if we only found um, a drug, you know, worked a bit to lessen the severity of the most severe cases and um, say, for example, um, it reduced uh, the average length of stay in intensive care, say, from 10 days to five days, that would have an enormous impact on the capacity of these intensive care units and the pressure on them, and possibly even on the restrictions that we need to place on our societies. And so from what you're hearing, are there are there any promising candidates out there, any existing drugs that, that look likely to be repurposed for, for COVID-19? Yes. In February, uh, the world's uh, scientists got together and they tried to figure out what were the most promising drugs um, in order to sort of uh, prioritize the trials that we were going to do. And on those lists were, you know, a handful of really promising to their mind compounds. There was this drug called remdesivir. There's the malaria medicine chloroquine, which has been uh, talked about quite a lot recently. And a third one is an HIV drug, which is a combination of two antivirals, and it's known as Coletra. And they're also trying that same HIV drug alongside something called interferon, which is a sort of protein that's part of our immune system. And that's also thought, you know, likely to be promising. And what about what is probably the longer term in terms of of finding a vaccine? What does the cold face of that look like? We have at least 40 different efforts around the world to develop a vaccine using lots and lots of different types of technologies. And so I think we should be very optimistic that we will create a vaccine. But here again, the question is when, and certainly everyone has always said that the trials will make that vaccine date far in the future. So there's a lot of confusion about how long a vaccine is going to take to develop. On the one hand, you've got um, President Trump spouting this nonsense about two months. On the other hand, you have people saying, um, you know, 18 months. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. Usually we license vaccines before we use them. And that takes time to go through the licensing process. But as we saw with the Ebola vaccine, we started to use the vaccine prior to the licensing. So I think we can definitely trim these timelines. In terms of how long vaccines take to test, you know, I do think we need to be thinking in terms of summer or beyond before we start to get results from efficacy tests. And remember, even when 
we do get some signals of efficacy from some of these vaccines. We then have a new problem, which is making enough of it. In fact, this problem of scaling up vaccine production is probably one we should be thinking about even now. Because if we want to mass vaccinate 7 billion people, we need to make that amount of vaccine. And we also need to do it without disrupting the routine uh, vaccines that we give to children to immunize them. Yeah, but you don't need to vaccinate all 7 billion people for it to have an effect. When we do start to get a vaccine, um, you know, in small quantities, it may be possible to deploy it in some quite clever ways. And, you know, as we saw with the Ebola vaccine, uh, we were able to do something called ring vaccination, which is to sort of vaccinate the contacts of people who had had Ebola. Um, we were able to give it to healthcare workers. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that that would be the exact approach that you would use with um, a COVID-19 vaccine initially, but you would almost certainly want to give it to healthcare workers. Um, and there may be some other uh, key people who would, who would need to have it. So I think with all the different approaches, uh, whether it's drugs or vaccines, we can be really optimistic that the world will find some sort of solution um, to this terrible uh, virus that is sweeping across our planet. Um, it will take a bit of time. I think we can certainly be optimistic that, you know, in the coming weeks and months that we may get some uh, good signals from uh, therapies, something that will allow us to help the sickest among us. Natasha, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jason. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. At over 100,000 square miles and with some 35 million people, Oromia is Ethiopia's largest and most populous region. Its most famous son is the country's prime minister, Abiy Ahmed. When he came to power in 2018, Mr. Ahmed promised democracy for all and an end to decades of conflict. The young reformist signed a peace deal with neighboring Eritrea, an act that won him last year's Nobel Peace Prize. There are those who have never seen war, but glorify and romanticize it. War is epitome of fail for all involved. Less well-publicized was an agreement intended to end a 50-year armed insurgency in his home state. But that deal hasn't lasted. The war in Oromia is threatening the country's transition to democracy and Mr. Ahmed's reputation as a leader committed to peace. So I met a man called Faseha Abera in a restaurant in this town in Akempt in western Ethiopia. And he just fled from the scene of some of the worst violence, the, some of the worst military crackdown in the whole region. Tom Gardner is our Addis Ababa correspondent. We were sitting in a restaurant and he unfolded a piece of paper on which he'd scrawled the names of 11 men shot by soldiers last year in a single day. And that was actually one of only two that happened that day in his vicinity. He also told me that in his village, five people were shot the day the military arrived last year. 
After these atrocities, there were mass arrests throughout his district, and more recently he and his two siblings fled to the town in a camp where I met him. They left one brother behind who was arrested last month. That was the second time in a year he'd been arrested, and he was beaten so hard he can no longer walk. Why is this crackdown happening? Well, the government is battling rebels from the Aroma Liberation Army, the OLA, in western Oromia and southern Oromia, mostly in Wolaga, which is the place I went to. Now, the OLA, historically, they're secessionists. They wanted an independent Oromo nation, uh, you know, ever since the beginning of the Oromo liberation movement in the early 1970s. And today it's unclear precisely what they're fighting for, whether they remain committed secessionists or whether they're merely demanding greater autonomy from the federal government in Addis Ababa. But most of the stories we've been hearing recently about Ethiopia were, were moves towards peace or towards democratization. Why is the, is the violence now on the increase? Well, yes, absolutely. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who won a Nobel Peace Prize last year for signing a peace deal with neighboring Eritrea, he also invited back rebels, including the Aroma Liberation Front, the OLF, of which the, the OLA is the armed wing. Thousands of political prisoners were released and former rebels like the OLF were welcomed back from exile to participate in elections, free and fair elections scheduled for August this year. The OLA was supposed to put down its guns and be reintegrated into the Aromia's police force. So there was a lot of optimism, uh, at least two years ago when this all began. But the peace deal the government signed with the OLF broke down almost immediately. Relations between the government and the OLF were pretty poor from the beginning. There was real breakdown of trust. There was never really any trust on either side right from the outset. They've been trading recriminations ever since the OLF arrived back from exile. They accused the government of betraying the Oromo cause, of failing to reintegrate their soldiers into the local police. The government, in turn, accused them of failing to disarm. And so by the end of 2018, it was basically open warfare in places like Wallaga and Guji. So it sounds as if, as, as regards the rebels anyway, things are every bit as bad as before these, these peace deals were struck. Well, no, in fact, they're a lot worse. Things were restive and there were a lot of protests in these particular parts of Oromia before Abbey came to power. But the armed insurgency was really pretty dormant. Since late 2018, the rebels have returned to the forests. There's been an uptick in assassinations of local officials, raiding military convoys, and, you know, essentially a fully-fledged counterinsurgency on the part of the government. In January last year, the military reportedly began conducting airstrikes against OLA training camps. This is something which, which hasn't happened for, for decades. So this is a real escalation. And so if this sort of simmering conflict has now broken out into what you describe as, as open warfare, I mean, that, that must leave civilians caught in the crossfire. Yes, absolutely. And, and civilians really seem to have been bearing the brunt of a lot of this. By December last year, an NGO called the Aromia Support Group had documented 64 extrajudicial killings, at least 1,400 cases of arbitrary detention across the region over the previous six months. The activists this year claimed the military had killed 59 civilians in one massacre in Wallaka. Later that month, the OLF alleged another 21 had been killed nearby. The whole region's under state of emergency, effectively. The military is in, in charge of uh, security. So the most important thing is that the internet has been su- switched off throughout the region uh, of Western Oromia since January of this year. And outside of major towns, in Wallaga, like Nakemp, where I was, which, you know, which are under curfew, even landlines and mobile networks are disconnected. So reports of killings and arrests travel by word of mouth. 
you know, there's been a tightening of political space as well as a, as a military crackdown. And in this town of Nekempt, where the military's sort of operations are based, I spoke to a woman who, who lost her son, her teenage son, uh, who was walking home from school one day. The military are kind of patrolling the streets, and there have been quite a few cases of what seemed to be totally random killings of ordinary civilians, and her son was one of them. <laughs> I had two sons, now I have just one. I don't know why he was shot. My son was young, he didn't know about politics. She told me that on the day of her son's funeral, uh, there was a huge crowd came out, gathered on the streets of Nekempt uh, to mourn. The military tried to disperse people with tear gas, uh, she told me. I think this gives you a sense of the lack of accountability and justice that people are feeling in the region right now, and also just the kind of pervasive harassment and intimidation that they feel they're subjected to on a daily basis now in towns like these. I should say, however, it's very difficult to verify her allegations about the murder of her son, difficult to verify these types of killings in general. There's virtually no way to speak to military officials in the region about specific allegations. And what about Abi Ahmed himself, Nobel laureate, widely known as, as a grand peacemaker? What is he saying about all this? Well, he's admitted the military is carrying out operations in both these areas, Wallaga and Guji in, in Aromia. He's also admitted that the internet has been shut down for this reason. But like the rest of his government, he disputes allegations of excessive brutality, of atrocities against civilians. He says he's open to negotiations. Last month, he told lawmakers that it's good for people to solve their issues through discussions, meetings and conversations. Now, that's the official line. But the reality is it doesn't seem like the government is really interested in, in any more peace talks. To be fair to them, they don't seem to have been very effective so far. But it acts as if the conflict can be resolved through force alone. And so with that as the, the evident driving idea, how do you see this playing out? At the moment, trust between the two sides is essentially non-existent, which means we're in this sort of seemingly endless war. The rebels simply denounce the Ethiopian state as a colonial oppressor, which can never be trusted. The government says that they're just targeting bandits, essentially. So the prognosis from where I'm looking right now is, is pretty bleak. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. Instagram is looking a bit different right now. In normal times, people upload photos of latte art and luxury holidays. Around the world, COVID-19 has closed cafes and grounded many flights. But people are still posting about where they are, and that may hold valuable insights into the spread of the coronavirus. Instagram is a good place to do this kind of research because people tend to put down their location when they put a post out on Instagram. Sandra Solstad is The Economist's senior data journalist. Authorities these days are struggling with tracking where people have been and if they've possibly come in contact with someone who had the virus or even if they are potential carriers of the virus. Seeking to ascertain where they have been, it's, it's a good idea to have some location history. Instagram provides that through the posts and, and where people have checked in. And so how did you go about actually getting some useful data out of Instagram then? 
The challenge is identifying people who have been at places where the virus is widespread. So the first step was to identify places where the virus was rampant. And the cutoff that I chose were places where there are at least 50 confirmed COVID-19 cases. With this list of places in hand, what I could do was I could go in and find the nearby locations where people had posted pictures. So for instance, in Wuhan city, there might be some monuments or maybe some famous museums where people would check in. I could then go and see who had checked in and use that to create a list of accounts that had possibly been at a, well, a COVID-19 hotspot. But not everyone is always talking explicitly and only about where it is that they've taken that picture. No. And that's why Instagram is so neat, because people, while they don't say sort of where they are necessarily, most people actually put down a location for every post they make. And these locations are what I use to track both if people had been at a virus hotspot and also where they went next. A problem, though, is that they might mention places that aren't related to where they are. So you have a post in the U.S., a post in the U.S., a post in the U.S., then one in Wuhan, and then five minutes later, a post in the U.S. So what I found out is that people tended to tag Wuhan when they were talking about the virus, or maybe tagging other locations where the virus was a thing just to talk about it. So to try to avoid this sort of spoiling the data and making for a lot of false positives, what I did was I just dropped all the accounts I could only trace to Wuhan city and also all the accounts that talked about the virus at all. So from all of Instagram, you have found all of the people who really were in what were suspected hotspots. I mean, what does that data set look like? I wasn't able to find every single account that could possibly be traced to these hotspots, but I could find about 20,000 users. Now for these users, I have in total about 10 posts that they made thereafter on average, and I have the location of all these posts and also the text of all these posts for that matter. So what I was left with after going through all this was 53,000 posts in over 2,000 cities in 125 countries. And having thinned it out to that, what does the data set tell you? There is a lot of travel from these virus locations all over the world, pretty much. And furthermore, the movements of the people from virus locations tends to track the movements of the virus themselves, as recorded in cases by researchers and national authorities. So for instance, sometimes I would see a dot of, say, a user from Iran arriving in a certain city elsewhere, and then maybe two days later, cases would start appearing in that city. Other times, the posts tended to lag behind the cases. So maybe there were a bunch of cases in one country, and then suddenly I saw that there were a lot of people checking in from Switzerland in that country. And there I surmised that maybe these people weren't carrying the virus themselves, but they could be behind a travel flow. That could be how the virus got to that country. So you have a a great many correlations kind of mixed up in time. I mean, is there a way to use this approach to use, in fact, these data to make useful predictions? I think so. For public health officials, essentially, the closer they can get to real time, the better. And what is neat about Instagram is that it's essentially sort of a crowdsource database of location data that I think they could and maybe should be using to track where people are coming in from and where they've been. And actually, related to this, I just saw that the UK government is cooperating with telephone network carriers to look at mobile ping data, so where cell phones are located, to see if people are obeying the quarantine. And I think the Polish government is doing something similar in that they ask people to send in cell selfies with the tag location to prove that they're sort of obeying the quarantine there. So one way of doing it is sort of these approaches where you're relying on the phone networks or forcing people to to say where they've been. But I think this approach of using data that is already public and people are willing to share might be a good approach as well. But I suppose that, that approaches like that come with privacy questions. Yes, and privacy is very important and is something that needs to be considered carefully. That said, I think 
an advantage of this sort of approach compared to, say, tracking where people's phones are or forcing people to notify their governments where they are at, at certain times is that this data is already public and out there. So that could be an advantage in that this is data that people have chosen to share publicly already. And at this time, when the spread of the virus is hard to track and every little bit of information help, I think it's a tool that could be useful for those trying to monitor and perhaps even stop the transmission of the disease. Sondra, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you so much, Jason. It was a pleasure talking to you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.